Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com. We're honored to have with us the award-winning and internationally acclaimed author and journalist, David Goodman. It's great to be with you, Barney. So I so I reached out to you, David, because I that I, I know that you have uh, you do a podcast that's connected to VT Digger, which is one of the, the the premier news outlets that we have here in Vermont. And you also simultaneously stream this podcast through WDEV out of Waterbury, correct? Right. Yes. And I was, and, and one of the aspects of it, because, you know, doing my research, you are a man of many hats. Not only are you considered, what is it, the godfather of backcountry skiing, you also do a lot of, there's a lot of good education that you do on the, the dangers of autocracies, which was another one of the things that you're, one of your passions about. Before we kind of like dive into just really talking about how you write and the difference between journalism and writing guidebooks. Do you want to give people a little bit of background on how you got into journalism and also in, in, in writing? Yeah. Well, I really have my high school newspaper, uh, Bayshore High School on Long Island, uh, and it's school newspaper, the Maroon Echo. Uh, that's really where I got my beginning. Although, if I'm to be honest, it predates that, something called Dave's Press, which was my publication chronicling the goings-on of my family. And I had as subscribers our extended family and some neighbors. My grandfather, there were letters to the editor. The, this I started at age seven. And I was using a rudimentary copying machine that a neighbor who was an accountant, who was modern enough to have this little heat sensor copying machine where you pressed the heat sensitive paper on one side. It was quite a labor intensive process. But um, my grandfather wrote in to complain that I was charging for subscriptions more than Newsweek. I think it was $5 a year. And he pointed out that Newsweek was only $3. So I was quite resistant to being shamed by anybody, not the least my grandfather. And I just simply told, I used the pages to shame my subscribers who had fallen in arrears, including my grandfather. So if I'm really to be honest, that is the roots of my journalism. Um, in high school, uh, I was very involved in my high school newspaper, uh, which was uh, kind of a bright spot at, um, in the school. It was a perfectly good high school, but um, the newspaper was a national award-winning paper, um, which was kind of a curiosity, and um, but it nevertheless kind of gave me the bug. And I interestingly did not do journalism in college, but returned to it immediately upon graduating and began freelance writing, and I have never stopped. So I graduate college um, in 1983, and I just started freelancing around Boston and um, writing for publications there, Boston Magazine. Uh, I was also an Outward Bound instructor in the summers. So the outdoors was my passion. And then uh, I had done a story about the renaissance of backcountry skiing in the early, in the mid eighties for Cross Country Skier Magazine, uh, because it, 
blended my passion. I was a history major in college. So it blended my passion for history, for outdoor adventure, and for telling stories. So it was sort of a historical piece about uh, how there was a heyday of backcountry skiing in the 1930s. It went away and it was coming back here, there in the 80s. And right at that moment, the Appalachian Mountain Club was interested in doing a guidebook, uh, its first skiing guidebook in a half century, and got my name and thus began a um, sort of almost accidental um, authorship of, you know, what has come to be known as the Backcountry Skiing Bible, the only North uh, Backcountry Skiing Guidebook to the Northeast, which I've done now five of them. Um, and um, so there's that. But I have, you know, was very involved in politics and activism in college and continued to be. Also wrote a book about South Africa's transformation from apartheid uh, that came out in 1999 called Fault Lines. And um, so I have just continued to do both. And, you know, I tell people uh, that's the free and freelance. You are free to pursue. <laughs> Maybe nobody else sees the connection, but it makes sense to you. So, so I'm really curious as well, because a part of, it, as you mentioned, like your the backcountry skiing adventures books that you come out, you, if I remember hearing in a previous interview, you kind of update that every 10 years or so as well. I do. The most recent one came out in 2020. If you told the 20 something David Goodman that this book that he was doing almost as a lark, I mean, when I got a call asking, um, you know, they wanted to pay me, not much, but a little to ski and write about it, I would have laughed. And if you told me I would be doing it 40, I don't know, 30 plus years later, five editions later, I would have wondered what you were smoking. I um, So this, as I say, has been kind of accidental, but it's, I, I love it. And I think the thing that I love about uh, writing about skiing in the Northeast. One is its rich history. It is the story of New England. It's the story of how New England com rural communities were settled. And two, it's also about community. It's a way that people come together. And especially in recent times and during COVID, we saw just an incredible explosion in interest. And I think it's because people have were really struggling for ways to come together that was uh, safe. And they found it in the outdoors and in winter, they found it on skis. So um, I also, you know, for me, it, it doesn't, uh, it still includes my passion for social justice issues and environmental issues. Um, you know, skiers are the canary in the coal mine for climate change. And I do include in all of my books uh, an invocation that um, if you ski and you love to ski, we are, our habitat is threatened by climate change and you need to be active to do anything you can to address those issues. So um, it, it all makes sense to me. <laughs> it represents all the things I'm interested in. So as a writer, how different have you seen being able to see the, the the different evolutions of that guidebook? Has it been a journey for you also to not necessarily see the how 
how the the genre and, and the subject that matter that you're writing about has has changed and evolved. I, you mentioned in a in another interview how Maine now is getting a, a larger backcountry skiing. Nothing stands still. I mean, as a as a guidebook author, it would make my life really easy if it did. I wouldn't have to go re-ski everything and re you know uh, research everything. Not that that's a hardship, but um, you do cover a lot of ground. Uh, the story of skiing again tracks with the story of conservation and environmentalism in the Northeast. You mentioned, you know, in the early, in the very first edition of my backcountry skiing guidebook, which was called Classic Backcountry Skiing, came out in 1988. Um, there wasn't a ton of skiing, backcountry skiing in Maine. Maine is intensively logged. And so finding, you know, forest and mountainsides that weren't being plundered wasn't easy. But in the latest edition, uh, Maine has been the site of the largest conservation effort in the Northeast called the Maine Woods Initiative by the Appalachian Mountain Club, where they have purchased and conserved over 100,000 acres um, for many miles uh, around uh, Baxter Park, where Mount Katahdin is. And the result of that is this beautiful hut-to-hut skiing network that I've written about for the New York Times um, and elsewhere. So Maine has actually, you know, uh, 30, 40 years after I started this, has come to be a real gem in the landscape of backcountry recreation. Uh, how often do you go back and read some of your your previous editions? And have you seen an evolution in even your writing style since 88? Well, that's a really interesting question, Barney, because um, I am constantly, you know, when I'm writing new versions, I am editing the 20 year, you know, the 28 year old version of myself. Um, fortunately, I mostly like the way that I wrote then. I mean, I do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cha- updating the information, but I do find that I keep, you know, kind of the heart and soul of it. Um, and while I hope my writing improves, like everything we hope in our lives improves about us, but I'm okay with, you know, what I was saying and how I was saying it back in my 20s. So um, I actually enjoy reading my early writing, uh, whether it's about politics or about um, the outdoors. There's kind of a, there's an excitement, there's a freshness that comes through. And, you know, I think one of the things that happens as you do something for a long time is it can be harder to get that excitement and freshness in your voice. You sort of develop a more professional voice and, you know, do all the things that grownups do <laughs> to be accepted in the world. So when I see the, the sort of unfiltered me, I kind of think, well, I'm, I'm lucky to have that, you know, to work with. I don't have to. I don't have to smooth out the road, the, you know, the, the edges. Right. And so because you have such diverse subjects that you've worked on over, over, over the years, is there any specific ones that you feel that you're, you're more passionate about that kind of recharges you? And there are other, are there other subjects that you actually utilize as kind of like a break in a sense? Like I just need to relax a bit. This is right. Something to recharge myself again. You know, I don't think I can ever be too impassioned. I think if I'm in that space, I'm in the right place. 
Right. I think if anything, the opposite is the thing that I try and avoid, which is becoming um, where the passion doesn't come through. I mean, that for me, that little spark, that candle is, I feel like my whole life, mm. I have done what I can to keep that thing burning hot um, and stay in the place where I feel that inspiration, that excitement, or in the case of politics and the world, the outrage, the indignation. Um, so I try to go to those places. Um, you know, as far as where I go to relax, that would be the outdoors, even though some of these are pretty exciting, high and wild places. It's where I go to find peace, you know, when, when I need to kind of recharge I go to the mountains and I live in the mountains. So there's no coincidence about why I'm here. Um, and, you know, it was funny during COVID as Vermont experienced this land rush, I call it, you know, of folks from the cities moving here and discovering, you know, what I think many of us discovered long ago, which is uh, it's a good place for the soul as well as for the mind and the heart. How for for those that, that that might be watching or listening that also might be writing and, and and doing some other projects, what advice could you give them on how to diversify your time in the sense because you do a podcast, you're also a freelance journalist, and you're also writing books. How do you balance your energy and your creativity and making sure that you're able to do everything successfully? Well, um, yeah, I kind of do it all at once. It's sort of what I do. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's sort of like saying, you know, asking a carpenter, uh, you know, how do you build houses, remodel kitchens, and, you know, do all the things a carpenter does. And I do actually have high praise for carpenters. I do feel like I'm kind of building a house and it has to be sturdy and beautiful and be pleasing to look at, or in my case, to read. Um, I don't really draw lines. It's all kind of just part of one a continuous um, process and creative process. I really enjoy uh, the, the doing the Vermont Conversation, the weekly podcast and radio program, because it is a different medium, and I'm getting to interact with people like you. Um, you know, and it's um, – I enjoy – conversations. I've always enjoyed them. I guess that's why I'm a journalist. So this is an opportunity to, and, and Vermont Digger gives me enormous freedom to talk to, talk to and about whatever I want. Um, so I just consider that the greatest gift. And I hope that it's as enjoyable for people to listen to uh, because I am enjoying, you know, and we're you know, where, you know, you're, it can be a mix of challenging people, whether it's politicians holding people in power to account, or just exploring somebody's passion about something. I feel a responsibility to give a voice to people who don't have a voice, who don't have access to power. And, you know, some of the Vermont conversations I'm proudest of are where I do that. You know, um, last year, um, gave an exclusive interview to a transgender student uh, in Randolph High School who had been the subject 
of a national anti-trans attack. And this student never spoke up, you know, was trying desperately to avoid being the target. And then I got somebody reached out to me to say this student who called themselves Rabbit um, would like to talk, would like to tell their story. And I felt, um, you know, honored that they reached out to me, but also really moved by their bravery to finally speak up at great risk themselves. This is a 14 year old young person um, who, who was, you know, I had to say at one point in the program to remind listeners, you're listening to a 14 year old here. You know, this person with all this wisdom and experience has so much to teach us. Um, so things like that and, you know, talking to people who are living close to the edge and unhoused, um, I feel like that's the, when I'm doing my best work, um, <clears throat> when I'm giving a platform to people who wouldn't have a platform otherwise. So, I, and I feel that's my responsibility. I, I sort of trace that back to when I wrote a book about South Africa under uh, its transformation from apartheid, that grew out of, I was a, in college an anti-apartheid activist in the 80s. And um, at that time, the only thing we ever said about South Africa was to boycott it. And then after college, I, um, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I talked about traveling there. And I went to the representative of the African National Congress, that's Nelson Mandela's political party. Uh, it was banned in South Africa, but there was a representative in Boston. And I knew him, Temba Vilakazi. And I said, you know, kind of sheepishly, so I kind of would like to go to South Africa, you know, the place we're always saying boycott. And I said, what do you think? And he replied very quickly. He said, if you can, he says, I can't get in. I can't go there. He said, but you can. And if you go there, you have a responsibility to tell people what you see. So I have kind of taken that my, my whole life, that I have a responsibility to tell people what I see when I go to places that perhaps others can't go, whether it's the top of a wild mountain in winter or um, you know, a shanty town in South Africa, uh, I still try and bring back those voices. And that was your and that was your book, Fault Lines, correct? Yes, Fault Lines, Journeys into the New South Africa. Regarding your podcast, how do you choose what guests come on and, and how yeah. do you kind of balance uh, importance of making sure that the story seems to be historical in nature, some of it capturing the moment and some of it trying to, trying to be evergreen? It's up to me who I choose to have on. I am a voracious news hound, so I am always reading. Um, and things that catch my interest and that I think would be of interest to an audience, I alternate um, you know, oftentimes I'm doing things that have a Vermont connection. Oftentimes I'm not, you know, doesn't have a Vermont connection. Uh, I guess the thing is I, it needs to be important, needs to be relevant, needs to perhaps tell people something they don't know or tell people something they do know in a new way or with a unique voice. I don't really have rules around it. And, um, Vermont Digger and WDEV don't place any rules on me. So that's an enormous amount of trust. 
and I deeply appreciate that. And I, um, so far, the things I find interesting, uh, it seems other people find interesting to listen to. So um, therein lies the sweet spot. And I'll, I just keep continuing to, you know, try to follow my nose and, um, and, and seek out voices that perhaps aren't getting the airtime that they could get. So when I listen, I'm, I'm also a big listener of podcasts. And I always tell people, you know, when you listen to the daily, you know, the New York Times podcast, which is, I believe, the most popular podcast in the world, uh, I always tell people, listen, make sure you listen at the end to what I call the cast of thousands, the producers, the sound design people, the editors, the fact checkers. Mine is very short. It's me and I have one editor um, and that's it. So <laughs> this mine is an example of, um, you know, what you can do with a lot of curiosity and determination and uh, and a lot of trust that's given to me by the people who I work with. So you bring up bring up the editor piece. How important is an editor to a writer? Oh boy, a great question. I feel like in my life, I've had very few. Uh, I won't even say good editors. Editors. I mean, in the budget cutting that's going on in the world of journalism, sadly, editors. You know, whose name you don't see. That great article you read or listen to, you don't necessarily hear who edited it. Sadly, editors are often the ones uh, getting cut. They are, you know, overworked. And the result of that is they don't edit. They'll kill a story if they think it needs more work than they have time and energy to have. But I love good editing. I love somebody making my work better. Um, I love collaborating, really. And I've done a lot of collaborations Um writing books with other people. Um, so I really enjoy the collaboration process and I really am sorry that I don't get enough of it because boy, you know, I feel like I write I can write a good first draft, but a good editor can just really make it sing. And it's, um, it's not that often that I have the opportunity. It's also, you know, an issue of trust, an editor trusting you that uh, to tell the story well and to, to know that you can do it. And, you know, places are just so understaffed right now that that step is sadly being uh, eliminated. So, so how often do you uh, do collaborations on other works? I've done a lot of book collaborations. Um, I've written four books with my sister, Amy Goodman, who uh, hosts Democracy Now!, uh, I just uh, have finished two other books. Uh, one, I had four co-authors. Uh, it's called The Community Schools Revolution. And there was an education book I did before that with uh, uh, Mark Warren, a professor at UMass Boston of, of politics and education. Um, so those collaborations are, you know, people come to me and if it's of interest to me and I like the person and feel like we'll, you know, there's, it's a tricky thing. It's not easy. It's a kind of, I won't say marriage, but it's kind of is for a period of time. So you're going to be really closely tethered to that person and to that topic, living, eating, and breathing it. 
So you want to make sure that it is something and someone who you're up for being bound tightly to. You know, the book I just had come out this week, The Community School Revolution, was a two-year-long project. I love my co-authors on this. I, I think what really makes it work is, uh, at its best, a collaboration work. You know it's working where, you know, a collaboration involves passing something back and forth between yourselves. And to me, it's really singing when it's getting better on each pass. Sometimes you're fighting over it, and it's not necessarily getting better. You're just, like, fighting and arguing. Um, I try and see that coming and avoid it. But um, when you can do that thing where, you know, like a tennis match, where each time your stroke is getting better and stronger and more accurate because the person you're playing with is sort of setting you up to succeed, um, that's the sweet spot of collaboration. So when you talk about some of these books that that you've done collaboration with, do you like write a section to say, hey, David, we want you to write your, this is your topic, write about this? Or are you, is your authorship kind of interweaved throughout the entire book? They, everyone is different. Sometimes you are each individually writing sections and then swapping and, and editing one another. Sometimes you have independent authorship of large sections and um, and sometimes you're just trying to, uh, I would say that just writing together, sitting side by side and arguing over words, that's the worst and I've done that. <laughs> um, so I've done that and I know not to do that. So I've kind of done every variation on this. And for me at least, when a writer has the freedom to write and to speak in their voice, and to tell a story, that's that's really optimal. You're letting them do their thing. Um, so I try and structure the collaborations to where we're both doing that. We're all enjoying doing the thing we love to do and that we hopefully do well. And, and so how important is it com compared to compared to your journalism aspects of things where things seem to be specifically timely and newsworthy, how 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 important is that when you actually do long form books doing some level of prose or guidebooks that they there has to be a sense of evergreen to them in order to make sure that they actually last longer as compared to um, some journalism pieces uh you know that's a good question in that um you know sometimes you're not that you know when i'm telling the story of south africa's transformation from apartheid um I, it's a pretty ever, you know, I have to assume that's a story people will be interested in for a long time, just because it's a historic event. Um, when I'm, you know, my sister and I are writing about current events, you know, the Bush administration, the Iraq war, um, that is a lot of people are interested because they're passionate about it at that moment. So that's a whole nother opportunity to engage with readers. So each one kind of does, they're doing similar things, but there's, you know, the urgency of writing about current event helps one and the evergreen nature of historical ones helps another. And then there's skiing, which hopefully people always want to, are interested in. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because almost to the point it's, 
Have you ever thought about doing that the similar format you're doing with your backcountry skiing by having like a second edition, a third edition to revisit? Have you ever thought doing that with some of the the books that you wrote earlier that were considered current events? Now looking at them through a historical lens instead of writing them um, as they were happening. Well, yes, but it kind of you know you have to make sure. Um, I mean, it may just deserve another book. You know, if I were to write a book about South Africa now, which is uh, you know, 25 years after the first book, it's really another book. It's not just another chapter. So there's always an opportunity to tell new stories about a place. You don't just have to add to the old ones and deciding when it deserves, you know, a fresh treatment from the ground up is part of a writer's craft. How how different? Because you mentioned before you're, you're you're proud of the fact you're proud of the fact that you're a freelance writer. How has freelance writing changed and evolved since you started doing it in the late nineties? Um, it's harder now, uh, which is sort of a funny thing to say because there's so much many more outlets. Um, there's all the online things, but I think what I began doing as a twenty something supporting myself as a freelance writer is harder to do now. Uh, so I don't know if I could just start out and do now what I started out doing uh, in my 20s, uh, which isn't to say people shouldn't do it. You should, you know, one should follow their dream. And if they can figure out a way to make it work for them and sustainable for them, um, by all means do it. But I think it's just harder. You know, my friends who I've, my fellow freelance writers and many of us are, you know, communicate with one another. It's kind of important in that, um, you know, if you work for a publication or in a newsroom, you have colleagues to talk to. Uh, I, I at one time was very involved in, for, in uh, the National Writers Union, which is a union of freelance writers, just as a way to have community as well as to, you know, protect our, our rights and the working conditions that writers have. Um, so we talk, and when I talk to my colleagues now, uh, a lot of the people who started out with me doing what I do are no longer doing this. It's hard to make it sustainable, I think now. Uh, but I, so I feel lucky that I can still do this. What advice would you give somebody in their twenties who wants to get into freelance writing? Um, follow your passion. You know, your best writing, your best reporting is about something you care about and are passionate about. Don't do just one thing. You know, I, um, you could, you could, you could easily make the opposite argument, be a specialist, be an expert, that'll keep you in demand. For me, not being a specialist, writing about everything from politics to skiing, that's been my thing that has worked for me. Um, so I tend to, to, tell people what worked for me is, you know, and don't have all your eggs in one basket, certainly in the publishing world. Um, it's a pretty crazy time, you know, uh, publications that have been around for over a hundred years are going under. So just being nimble, being able to move, uh, and, and keep moving forward in the things that you love to do is important. And also exploring different ways to do it. You know, I've, uh, done. I've been a journalist working for UNICEF, traveling to conflict zones, reporting on situation for women and children uh, in places 
like Sudan and Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and that's also been a really amazing part of my life is continuing to go to remote places and tell those stories that I find there. You know, talking to child soldiers in Liberia and how they try and rebuild a life. Um, so I've I've had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of really interesting reporting. Is there any genres of of writing that you still want to explore, whether it be like children's books or other like fiction novels or anything? Yes, I would be very interested to have the opportunity. I have been thinking a lot about going back to the community where I grew up on Long Island and maybe telling some of the stories um, of what happened there. Um, there's, you know, a very interesting history, civil rights and other things, things I maybe didn't understand when I was growing up there, but kind of exploring that. So it wouldn't, it's not memoir, but it's sort of memoir-ish to go back and explore things that happened to me and to my family and to make sense of them now. So that's on my mind. It would be fun. Oh. It's whether I can interest other publications or publishers, but I haven't really put the idea out there yet. So it may yet happen. Right. So, so David, if people want to learn more about your work, where's the best place they could go to? So uh, dgoodman.net is my website. Um, and you can see a lot of my writing there, or you can go to VT Digger and find, um, in the Vermont Conversation, and it's there's new episodes every week, um, and uh, my Twitter is David Goodman VT. Uh, so you know I'll often be reporting about um, stories. So yep, there's there's where you get to see <laughs> what I'm doing in real time. So those are some of the places. And Best Backcountry Skiing is my website for my skiing. Well, thank you very much, David. As I say, I've been looking forward to chatting with you for months now, and I'm so glad that we're able to connect. Likewise, Barney. It's been great to talk with you. 